the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 1st of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Russian Federation's unprovoked and unjustified further invasion of Ukraine continues to visit death and destruction upon the country and its people, inflicting enormous hardship and suffering. This is Ambassador Jim Kelly, Ireland's Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations. Ireland stands in unwavering solidarity with the people of Ukraine. They have shown extraordinary courage and resilience. Ambassador Kelly at an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council giving Ireland's position on the Russian invasion. Ireland is gravely concerned by the use of explosive weapons in populated areas, which carries a particular risk of causing civilian harm in violation of these fundamental legal obligations. We are particularly concerned by reports of indiscriminate Russian attacks and shelling in Kharkiv, causing death and destruction among the civilian population. The use of prohibited cluster munitions by Russian forces has been reported. If confirmed, this is a further damning indictment of its military aggression. Cluster munitions are by nature indiscriminate and we condemn all use of these weapons in all circumstances. Today, Russia stands accused of war crimes by Ukraine, and there is much concern for civilians and also because of uh, the nuclear threat. Ireland urges against attacks on infrastructure and installations, including nuclear power plants. Such attacks would have profound effects on the health of millions and render the surrounding environment uninhabitable for generations to come. And Russia not only has nuclear weapons, uh, there is also much concern about Chernobyl. Any armed attack on and threat against nuclear facilities devoted to peaceful purposes constitutes a violation of international law, including the principles of the United Nations Charter, Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions and the IAEA Statute. We also express our great concern at the deployment of weapons and armaments or conducting missile strikes directly from the Chernobyl exclusion zone. War rages on, the world watches on, and hundreds of thousands flee from Ukraine to escape the war. Ireland and its EU partners are providing significant humanitarian support, and we stand ready to do more. And Ambassador Kelly asked that other countries do the same. We appeal to all countries in the region to keep their borders open to all of those seeking safety and protection. Ireland is already providing humanitarian support, including core funding to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, as well as announcing a 10 million euro humanitarian package in recent days. Ambassador Jim Kelly, Ireland's Deputy Permanent Representative uh, to the United Nations, speaking at uh, that UN Security Council emergency meeting yesterday. Let's talk now to Karen Coleman, uh, the editor of Europarl Radio, which reports from the European Parliament uh, for Irish radio stations. Good morning, Karen. Thanks, as always, uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. We heard Ireland's appeal there to other countries to open their borders uh, to uh, people fleeing from Ukraine, but there is a great solidarity being expressed across the world uh, with Ukraine at the moment. It's almost as if it's Russia against the rest of the world, isn't it? Yes, good morning, Michael. I mean, certainly, and of course, it's horrific when you see 
um, particularly the strikes that have been taking place, Russian missile strikes on places in Ukraine overnight, still battles going on. Um, the Russians are trying to control the uh, city of Kharkiv that's still in Ukrainian hands and reports overnight too that some 70 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed in a place called Oktyrka, um, which is between Kharkiv and Kiev. But I think what is particularly chilling are those images taken by uh, an American mm. satellite company of that massive convoy of Russian military vehicles um, estimated to be over 60 kilometres long. Can you imagine that? I was looking at images of it um, in the early hours of this morning and some of those vehicles were, you know, there were three abreast on the road uh, travelling towards Kiev, uh, reports that maybe they might be about, I think something like maybe 18 kilometres or so from Kiev at the moment. But that is absolutely staggering that uh, that number of Russian forces and military tanks and all their might are making their way towards Kiev. Mm. And um, you're looking at that thinking the people of Ukraine are going to be in for a horrendous time. Um, Whether, you know, places like Kiev may ultimately become a city of siege and there'll be street to a street uh, combat fighting between the Ukrainian people and the Russian soldiers and I think when we look at those images this is what is making this particular war in Europe on European soil so staggeringly unbelievable is because we can see these images now we can hear um, these incredible people from Ukraine because I think over the last two years because of COVID people have got very used to speaking to one another over Zoom and the technology has improved so we are able to hear the voices of people that probably in the past in previous wars we wouldn't have had that accessibility and I think that's why it's also just so incredible because we can hear what these people of Ukraine are saying, their desperation to reach out to people in the EU and elsewhere to get help from them and to hear their stories firsthand, you know, the kind of unbelievable sacrifices that they're having to make now. And I think that is what has initiated such a huge reaction from within the EU and, of course, outside the EU as well. And what difference will it make if uh, Europe uh, allows Ukraine uh, to join the European Union? Well, this has been a very interesting development, this request by uh, their, again, their uh, war hero president, uh, Zelensky. Certainly at the moment, he has made this urgent appeal to EU leaders to let Ukraine in. Um, and the bloc um, is, I think, the request, they're, they're, they're expecting a sort of an, an emergency application imminently. And then that will have to be assessed by the Commission and the European Council. This would be very unusual, Michael, because, as you know, um, applications to join the EU can take a very, very long time. There's usually a very arduous process that countries need to go through to be able to fulfil, I think, the, the Copenhagen criteria. These are all these chapters, as they call them in EU speak, that applicant countries have to fulfil. And so it would be a very unusual circumstance if a country was able to join the EU so rapidly. But maybe uh, as they can do at times within the EU, and we've seen it here in terms of the reaction um, and the sanctions being imposed, maybe there's a way around that, that they can be given some kind of, I don't know, Mm. temporary membership status. Um, But of course, that doesn't give Ukraine, it wouldn't give Ukraine military uh, support. That's a different thing. And that's why, of course, they're desperate to join NATO now, but to get military support and military defence.
Mm, But it wouldn't make any difference uh, to Vladimir Putin, I don't think. Uh, But uh, would it make any difference uh, to uh, the members of uh, the European Union? uh, uh, And I suppose I am thinking about that uh, military support uh, that uh, you say wouldn't necessarily come uh, along with membership. uh, But uh, it would make you feel as though an attack on a European country is an attack on all European countries. Well, yes, because if it was to be brought into the fold of the European Union, then absolutely Russia would then be attacking an EU member state. Um, and of course, that would be hugely significant. Now, how that would impact the supply of military equipment to Ukraine, that's a very different matter. Um, I was just reading there earlier a piece about Hungary and the fact that it doesn't want military weapons transiting through its own country to uh, to Ukraine because of implications um, for Hungarian ethnic minorities within Ukraine. And of course, we know that the Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, is a very tricky customer mm. who, you know, who has meetings with Putin every now and again. So, um, you know, as as you know, the 27 member states do not agree uh, unanimously on, on issues all the time. Uh, it took them a while, you know, in, in, well, not a while, I suppose, in EU terms. But, you know, initially the raft of sanctions was quite weak. Um, but then they came together largely because of the appeals being made by the Ukrainian people. Um, so and then within the 27 member countries, you've, of course, countries like Ireland, who are uh, non-militarily aligned and neutral mm. countries, so, and as are some other member states as well. So that becomes much more difficult. That's why military support by NATO is a much cleaner situation, if you like, because yeah. it's very clear there. If a NATO country is attacked, then they come to the defence of that particular member of NATO. Uh, with the European Union, it's a very different matter. Mm, yeah, and I suppose it uh, is uh, slightly blurred as well and depends on what your definition of uh, military uh, alignment, assistance uh, and so on is, uh, because uh, the European Union uh, has agreed to arm Ukraine. Yes, and they are going to be sending supplies. Uh, Not every country will send military supplies. Ireland, for example, is going to supply a different uh, range of of, of equipment. I heard, uh, I think it was Simon Coveney yesterday, Mm. you know, talking about helmets and flak jackets and stuff like that. But of course, another issue as well... Well, That is supplying the Ukrainian army, isn't it? I mean, when you give soldiers hats, uh, you're helping the war effort. Course you are. Yeah, mm. It's just yeah. you know you could say it's a matter of semantics. Well, you're giving them a helmet, but mm. they're wearing the helmet out maybe on the battlefields against Russia. But this, it, you know, it, it's they're pushing it as far as they can. They're trying to give support to the people of Ukraine without being seen to push the situation over to supplying military weapons. And it's always the difficult situation. This balance between what you can do as a neutral country and at the same time be seen to be helping in this situation the people of Ukraine. This is, a, this is you know, I think this is the first time really that now uh, the, the EU will be really pushed in terms of giving support to a country um, in Europe that is facing 
a horrendous situation uh, with the Russian forces and it's going to be extremely difficult. But I mean, I think Irish people, certainly the people I've been talking to, are absolutely horrified at what is going on in Ukraine. And you hear those courageous people, I mean, some people based in Ireland, Ukrainians, who are going back to defend their country. They know they're going back to extremely difficult situations. They may be killed. Their own people may be killed there. Um, And of Mm. course, that has, you know, that motivates people in this country. You see that and you and you say, well, we have to be doing something. But it's going to be very difficult. I, I think probably at times as this conflict unfolds, how Ireland can continue to help people without stepping over the line of its of its neutral status. Now, of course, yeah. a big thing will be taking in uh, refugees, people who are fleeing already. The UN is reporting maybe half a million people have left Ukraine and that number will only increase. Uh, and that's where there will be mm. a big obligation on the part of countries like Ireland who are not bordering uh, Ukraine, but, you know, who, who will need to step up to the mark and take in refugees from Ukraine, not just leave Poland and Hungary and Romania and other countries close to Ukraine to, you know, to shoulder all the responsibility in that. And um, that's where I think, you know, we can play a considerable role as a as a non-aligned and neutral country in in helping the people of Ukraine um, in as much as we can within the country. But certainly when they come out as refugees in opening our arms to them and and taking them in and and trying to make them as comfortable and safe as possible. What about uh, these war crimes? And uh, undoubtedly there have been war crimes uh, when you're killing children and uh, I think uh, 16 children have been listed uh, as having been killed uh, so far. Lots of attacks on residential areas in Kharkiv. Uh, as uh, you say, uh, the city is under uh, terrible attack and uh, there's been multiple rockets uh, from uh, the Russian forces. Uh, and uh, there's uh, the accusation uh, that this has uh, amounted to, to war crimes. Can Russia be held responsible? Well, yes. The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court um, says he would launch an investigation now into allegations of war crimes being committed by Russia. And of course, if Russia fires on civilian areas, um, then, and, and especially with uh, cluster munitions, mm. which we are hearing reports of now, these are dreadful things altogether. They land and then they spray out all, all this uh, artillery and it, it's extremely mm. um, destructive. Completely unpredictable. Very unpredictable. There's no they, way of knowing where the bombs are because uh, each bomb will have hundreds of bombs, uh, little uh, cluster bombs uh, that come from them. So there's no way of knowing uh, who you're going to hit and who you're going to kill as a result. So they're uh, regarded as war crimes in, in themselves uh, if uh, they're being used like that. Yes, and they're not supposed to. A military mm. uh, a, a opponent or whatever, a player, cannot use cluster munitions in, in civilian areas. That is considered an international war crime. Um, and it's certainly, you know, I, I the you, Ukrainian, you, because you mentioned, um, which of course um, Jim Kelly was speaking at yesterday, that, that extraordinary uh, UN assembly in New York and the Ukrainian ambassador actually said that Russia has used a, a thermobaric weapon during the invasion. These are horrendous things altogether. I think I'm no, uh, you know, munitions expert here, but no. I think they're a mix of chemical and biological ingredients and they are absolutely horrific. Mm. And if they are being used in civilian areas, you know, th- they could target hundreds, if not mm. larger numbers of people in these areas. And certainly, you know, you, you would have to 
to say that if they are being used in civilian areas, and that would absolutely justify a launch by the ICC into then these allegations. Now, that's, again, difficult because mm. they need to gather information. They, they can't just come out and say, well, Putin now is, is, is engaged in international war crimes, even though we may very well suspect that he is. But you need the evidence yeah. of that, and they need people on the ground to be able to. And these need to be forensic um, examiners, investigators, or there needs certainly to be good at forensic evidence mm. to be able to compile so that at a later stage that would go to the International Criminal War Crimes Tribunal if one was set up, for example, for Ukraine. And then um, you have your evidence there. But yeah. certainly. Even at that, though, Karen, you'd have to wonder what difference would it make? Uh, I mean, uh, are they going to arrest Vladimir Putin, or what will happen? Because. Uh, there seems to be no talking to the Russians uh, and uh, apparently and by all accounts they weapons of mass destruction before you get to the nuclear weapons uh, that they have uh, and therein lies uh, the risk and therein lies the reason it seems why uh, the West is fearful of taking the Russians on. Well this is the I mean this has always been the issue with Russia Michael this isn't some small little tin pot country in the middle of nowhere. This is, you know, a a country with one of the biggest, most powerful nuclear armed military forces in the world. Uh, And that is why always Russia has been treated with um, a great deal of care because of the implications of being drawn into a war with Russia. The consequences could be absolutely horrendous. And the fact that he would actually um, order his his nuclear uh, weapons department or nuclear forces to be on a state of alert is absolutely chilling. Um, and even at the moment, you know, Ukraine has been asking for no-fly zones over Ukraine so that missiles or Russian uh, warplanes couldn't fly over. But at the moment, uh, Western forces um, and NATO and the US, I think, are very reluctant to do that because that would then draw them into this war. Now, how long... They can stay out of it, if you like, yeah. um, mm. is very debatable because the question is how much will Putin push things? And you're mm. absolutely right. He seems to be cocooned in his ironclad cabal of, you know, fellow like-minded um, uh, dictators and uh, yes-men around him. And uh, he will only probably scoff at the moment of the efforts by the ICC to potentially launch uh, war crimes uh, mm. tribunal investigations and 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 you know sadly he seems to be he seems to still have an awful lot of support i mean there are clearly people within russia um and incredibly brave people we've been hearing them in some of the reports incredibly mm. brave russian opposition people people who who risking their lives to come out onto the streets in small numbers it has to be said in russia at the moment but you know there are a lot of people in there we don't know really the numbers of people yet, how many, what's the percentage of Russians who still support Putin and how many don't. But he yeah. still has an awful lot of supporters there. And, and rules with an iron fist. Uh, the question you asked a, a moment ago, Karen, is very interesting about how long the West can stay out of uh, this and perhaps the West will stay out of it whilst the war is in Ukraine. The question, I think, is will it end with Ukraine or will it go beyond that? Uh, and if it does and the West gets it involved, uh, we're into very, very serious territory. We're into incredibly serious territory. Then you're talking about 
NATO countries, the EU, um, not every country in the EU obviously being a member of NATO, but the EU in general, including Ireland, will be drawn into this. I mm. mean, we will not be able to stay out of this if Europe, uh, if the EU and European countries get engaged in a war with Russia. And, and again, like I said, this isn't a country that, you know, you could say, well, if you pour enough American troops in or, or European troops, they'll be able to take control. This is a, a you know, a country with nuclear weapons um, and he's certainly threatening to use them. Whether he would or not is a, is a different point. Um, but it's ex- ex- incredibly um, uh, serious at the moment. And, and Putin is a very unpredictable character. He's kind of like a madman right now. I mean, the fact that he would do this and he would charge ahead. He's clearly having obstacles and challenges in Ukraine right now, but that isn't stopping him. He's sending over those those convoys of military trucks towards Kiev. So, but then you know what what's in it for the Russians to engage in this war um, with other nuclear countries? Mm. You know what's in it for them? What are they yeah. going to do? Annihilate Paris or London, and then what? Sit back and think that you know they can get on with their lives, and that's why the whole policy of nuclear armed deterrence has worked because. Yes, maybe Moscow can fire off a nuclear weapon to Washington, but, you know, they can do it as well. Mm. So that's why it has always worked as a very strong deterrent yeah. to using nuclear weapons. And then it gets down to a question of who blinks first. Uh, and uh, sometimes when politicians are thinking about their legacy and how history will record them, uh, perhaps they're not too worried uh, if uh, it means there is no history left to record because uh, they've destroyed uh, the world. Because if they win that game of chicken, uh, they'll be remembered as uh, the person who made Russia mighty again uh, in this particular circumstance. Karen, we leave it there for the moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Coleman, thank you indeed, as always, for joining us today. Karen Coleman is uh, the editor with Europarl Radio, which reports from the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to an attack on an unarmed member of Angarda Shia Khan, which I think uh, really shocked all of us. Uh, let's speak uh, to Stephen Breen, crime editor of The Irish Sun. Uh, a very good morning to you, Stephen, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, we know that this Garda was uh, beaten, uh, petrol dumped on him, uh, was left in a disorient- disorientated state after being hit over the head with some sort of weapon and left by the side of the road. It is a most bizarre story, isn't it? 
It is very peculiar, uh, Michael. The, the huge Garda investigation in Cavan is now entering its second day following um, this incident which took place near Lockin House Prison in County Cavan around 2am um, on Monday morning. Now the Garda in question is doing okay in hospital. He's expected to be released today. He is suffering from concussion. But what we know from the event that took place is that he did raise the alarm around 2am to his colleagues and it, it looks as if he was um, held at gunpoint and beaten as well uh, as he suffered the concussion and also doused in uh, petrol. So a very terrifying experience uh, for the young officer involved. And yeah. Because of the fact he suffered concussion, Guardy are still trying to piece together you know, what actually happened. And a senior investigating officer has now been appointed to try and unravel this mystery. But uh, it's a possibility that he did come across some suspicious activity and something untoward happening in the area. And then because he's unarmed, he was on his own and then uh, he was then attacked by Gardaí believed by uh, at least two individuals. And he is a young guard, uh, only in his 20s. Yes, um, from Roscommon, has only uh, six years service. So, But it's a very uh, well-known guard in the community. He was on patrol at that time. And I think it's important to note that it's not unusual for members of the Gardaí, you know, especially in rural areas, to be on their own when they are patrolling. But it's it's an isolated area where this incident took place. So I think it's uh, it's just um, the, the main focus now is for the, the senior investigators to try and establish, you know, what happened. They don't think he was deliberately targeted. So the main theory at the moment is that he, he may have been targeted after stumbling across two individuals who were engaging in some type of crime. Mm, dreadful altogether. Uh, and uh, undoubtedly uh, that uh, search will go on until those people are brought to justice. Uh, and if we can go to the courts now, to the Central Criminal Court, and uh, some fairly dramatic uh, evidence given uh, there yesterday uh, following uh, the dreadful murder of a 17-year-old in the town. Yeah, well, this is the first individual who has been convicted of uh, involvement in the murder of Keen Moridi Woods uh, over two years ago. Uh, Jared McKenna has pleaded guilty previously to assisting the, the criminal gang and um, disposing of evidence used in that case. But some of the, the evidence and the facts that were given in, in court yesterday were, were quite shocking, where he maintains that he had no inkling and that um, his home was going to be used uh, for the, the murder of Kim already Woods. And um, he, he, when he, he admitted to surrendering his home you know, to the, a criminal grouping, but I think it was after that, the, thanks to the guard investigation, that you know, a lot of evidence was gathered at the rear of Jordan McKenna's home, including a bloodstained ballistic vest that belonged to a teenager that was found in a burn site not mm. far from the home. There was rubber gloves, uh, Swiss army knives, and a, a part of a sofa as well. So uh, it, it was a good result for the guards that they mm. could apprehend mm. this individual and bring him before the courts. Yeah, dreadful. Uh, bloodstained axe apparently found uh, as well. Um, and Mr McKenna said he didn't know that the murder was uh, going to take place in his home uh, but the person who asked him or told him to hand over uh, the property uh, was somebody who was well known to the Guardian has since deceased. Yes, that's that's correct. You know that, that individual's name wasn't mentioned uh, during the court process yesterday, but it did emerge in court that he was someone who was well known to Gardaí, was heavily involved in organised crime, and indeed had been behind numerous murders himself. So um, that that detail came out in, in court yesterday, and it showed that the link that McKenna had with this individual and was part of the gang 
who were in fact involved in, in a feud in Drogheda at that time, which resulted in the, the horrific killing of King Lorelli Woods. So quite a, a strong case yesterday. And But there are still other people before the court, so the investigation is very much ongoing. Right, and um, the case here is for cleaning up the house uh, and uh, interfering with the investigation. Yeah, it's cleaning up the house. That's what his job was within this organised crime gang. He's seen by Gardy as someone who was a trusted associate of this criminal gang, so he was given a specific task following the, the killing of, of King Lorelli Woods, and that was to clean up the house. It's also mm. to redecorate it as well, so there was bleach used, paint used as well. Um, a pair of jeans and a jacket belonging to him were also found in his house, and they had the victim's blood on it too. There was a, a red tail, a Corolla car, parked at the back of his house and, and, and the keys were found for the house too. So, you know, and inside the boot, you know, of the car, Gardy discovered, you know, the victim's blood and an axe, as you mentioned there, with mm. the blood on its handle and a pair of socks and also a bone fragment too. It was located in the back, the back passenger seat. So quite a lot, lot of evidence was stacked against this individual. Mm. And he, he said he, he was told uh, to destroy a lot of uh, this stuff that is obviously very important evidence. Yeah, well, he, he tried to do that in terms of the fire, not, not far from his home. And that was evidence um, from the, the actual scene where uh, the teenager was, was killed. And But he ultimately failed in that objective. And Gardy, because of their investigation, were uh, able to recover important pieces of evidence that were able to like, link Jordan McKenna uh, to this person's death. So um, he ultimately failed in that objective. And I think because the evidence was so strong against him, perhaps that's why he pleaded guilty in the end. All right, uh, and um, he's yet to be sentenced. Uh, when will that happen? Yes, that's uh, in in March. Um, not not too long, not too far away. Um, March the eighth, I believe. So he will be sentenced for his role in this crime, and he will be the first person then to be uh, March the eighth. Yes, so he'd be the first person to be um, sentenced in relation to a, a brutal crime that's said shockingly across the whole country. Okay, and do we know if he's uh, given information about uh, the people? Uh, who ordered him uh, to hand over the house and uh, to do some of uh, these other things uh, and getting rid of the evidence and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, it did, that didn't emerge in court. It, it just did emerge that um, he, he didn't know what he was doing, according to him, um, but, but he was someone who could be relied upon mm. um, within this, this criminal grouping. Um, but it, it's unusual for people like him because of his associations with this criminal gang to start naming people because the people are often afraid mm. that if they do that there could be repercussions but uh, nothing emerged to that effect about him and mm. any individual. Uh, apparently he told Gardy when he was interviewed uh, that if he did rat uh, that uh, they'd kill and mince his child uh, so no doubt he was very afraid of the consequences of giving information about the other people involved. Dreadful stuff altogether, two years on from that murder. Stephen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning, as always. Thanks, Uh, Stephen Breen, crime editor of The Irish Sun. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, on Friday, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, announced a €350 million plan to cut hospital waiting lists. These measures will make a huge difference but they won't be enough, particularly in light of the significant predicted backlog in health, uh, in demand for health services following the pandemic. We know that a lot of people stayed away from the health service during the worst of COVID-19 and that they didn't come forward for care. We know that others were unable to access non-urgent care. We want these people to come forward. We need these people to come forward. 
And when they do, there obviously will be a very significant additional pressure on the public health service. In fact, we estimate that over one and a half million patients will be added to the active waiting lists this year. It will be the highest number of patients on record being added to the active waiting list because of this um, unmet care need and this backlog because of, uh, because of COVID. Now, without this plan, therefore, it's estimated that the total number of people on the active waiting lists, which is about 720,000 today, without this plan, that would increase from about 720,000 to well in excess of a million people by the end of the year. So this plan details how we intend to ensure that 1.7 million people are treated and can be removed from the waiting list, no longer waiting for care. That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, on Friday. You heard the Minister say... It's a big plan, 350 million euro, 45 actions across four areas and a a lot will hopefully be achieved through it. But he said it's not going to be enough. Uh, I think David Cullinan, Sinn Féin spokesperson on health, will agree with that part of what the Minister had to say. And he's on the line with us. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, It goes without saying really that you would think it's not enough because you're bringing forward your own motion on waiting lists to the Dáil. Well, good morning, Michael. First, um, listen, the first thing I'll say is I welcome every single cent which goes into the health service and obviously any additional funding which is made available is to be welcomed. I also welcome any additional uh, capital funding, any additional nurse, consultant, junior doctor, healthcare assistant is all to be welcomed. The problem with the Minister's announcement, and, and you mentioned the £350 None of that is new money. So all of this is money that was announced in the budget in 2022 and that was confirmed by the Minister at the Oireachtas Health Committee last week. So this is essentially a repackaging of measures which were announced in the budget. And about £250 of that is going into what's called an access to care fund, which is not permanent funding. It's one-off funding given to hospitals to temporarily, I suppose, deal with waiting lists, but doesn't deal with structural problems. Most of that money, in fact, is actually going to go to the National Treatment Purchase Fund, where more patients will be outsourced for treatment. And again, people just want rapid care, so people won't mind if it's in a private hospital funded by the HSE, or if it's um, through uh, a public hospital. Uh, if, If people can get off a waiting list, obviously that's what they want, and I accept that. But the 350 million euro, as I said, is not new money and the minister has accepted it isn't going to be enough. And my problem is that the minister has essentially set targets in the plan in relation to reducing wait times, which I don't believe will be met. Uh, He said to me in the Oireachtas Health Committee last week that he was setting very ambitious targets, which are unlikely to be met, but isn't the good that we're setting high targets or, or far reaching targets. I think we need to be setting realistic targets because... We've seen in the past former ministers of health say that they will tackle waiting lists, bring down wait times, and in fact the opposite has happened where wait times have gone up. And I can go back over every minister Mm. for health since uh, the Taoiseach, uh, Micheál Martin was minister for health, and they all published plans exactly the same uh, as this minister in terms of temporary plans with temporary money uh, and also more outsourcing to the private sector, and the problem has got worse. So what our motion focuses on, Michael, is... What we see are the, the, the medium to long-term structural changes in healthcare which are needed. 
We obviously have to put the capacity into our public hospitals, which does mean more beds, because one of the problems that we have is that people can't be admitted quick enough into hospitals because we don't have enough inpatient beds. People can't be discharged into into the community Mm. quick enough because we don't have enough community beds. And also what has become a significant problem in recent times is diagnostic capacity, where we have 225,000 separate people waiting for a, a diagnostic scan Okay, but the minister. uh, Everybody will agree that the waiting lists are are, are very long. Uh, The minister said 100 million had been allocated to the National Treatment Purchase Fund for this year, and an additional 50 million has been added to that. Uh, And then there's another 200 million, uh, which is additional money, but you're obviously taking odds with that. No, it's not additional money in terms of what was announced in the budget. So what, what he's talking about there is additional money that he has been allocated to the National Treatment Purchase Fund, which he is right. But that money was allocated uh, once the budget was passed. So the total amount of money in this access to care fund is €350 million. Euro. Uh, and yes, some of that goes to the National Treatment Purchase Fund, but there wasn't one single cent of additional funding beyond what was committed to in the budget, has been provided. And I suppose what the area I would focus in on is capital funding, because if you don't have the hospital equipment, if you don't have the surgical theatre capacity, if you don't have the diagnostic capacity, what you're doing is creating bottlenecks in the system, which is part of the problem. If you don't Mm. have the inpatient beds, uh, you have a build-up in your emergency departments. People are then left on trolleys because they can't be admitted into a bed. And then you have people who are in beds who want to be discharged and need to be discharged into a community. And they can't be because we don't have or, enough or, or else you're paying private providers uh, for their service, uh, which is what the National Treatment Purchase Fund is, uh, I suppose. Uh, would uh, you continue, uh, if you were Minister for Health, would you continue with uh, the National Treatment Purchase Fund? Well, I think what I would do, Michael, is not provide any additional funding into it and and look then at embedding the uh, new funding into the public system. I completely understand that there is now a very significant fund made available to the National Treatment Purchase Fund, which does provide for treatment, mainly elective procedures in private hospitals. And if I was a patient, and I'm sure if you were a patient and you were offered treatment in a private hospital to get off a waiting list, you would take it. So I completely understand that people want to be treated as quickly as possible. The problem is that if we continue to invest more by outsourcing, then what we're essentially Mm. doing is we're not investing in the public system and building up the capacity that the public system... Is that an answer that would apply to the short term uh, or would you plan uh, to end uh, the use of uh, the National Treatment Purchase Fund and to provide these services uh, from uh, the state? Well, I think in principle, I would want to uh, end it, but over time, I I don't believe that can be ended overnight. So I think we have to be realistic about what's possible. Certainly over the term of government, uh, my intention would be not to increase funding into uh, that fund and then slowly wean ourselves off the dependency that we have created in relation to this fund. And you do that by building up capacity in the public system. So if you listen not just to what I'm saying, but to what the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation are saying, the Irish Medical Organisation, the Irish Hospital and Consultants Association are all saying that more outsourcing, not just in relation to the NTPF, but also outsourcing in relation to diagnostics and other areas as well, including, by the way, more recruitment of agency staff, is all actually... Uh, adding to the total cost. We're not getting bang for buck. We're not getting value for money. 
and we're not putting the money into the public system. And, and I think what I would want more than anything in healthcare is greater efficiency, more accountability and transparency, because we are spending €22 billion Euro this year in, health, mm. in healthcare, which is a huge amount of money, Michael. And one of my bugbears in relation to healthcare is that we don't have accountability at the top, and that permeates right down to hospital management. There are examples of good hospital management, and while I'm on the line, I want to pay tribute to management in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in your own uh, part of the country. I know they took a zero-tolerance approach to uh, emergency department waits, and it was, a number of years ago, one of the worst hospitals in the country for uh, patients on trolleys. It has turned that around, and it turned it around because of, of efficiencies, good management, working with staff, trusting the staff to do what's right, and I think that zero tolerance approach okay. and using the investment which the hospital gets as effectively as possible is also what we need to ensure happens right across all okay. acute hospitals. So I think accountability is really important. Okay, I'm over time. I have to leave it there. But thank you indeed uh, for thank joining you, us. The doll will debate your motion this evening. David Cullinan, Sinn Féin spokesperson on health. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Yeah, thanks to Declan in Dundalk who was on uh, the phone to us uh, saying uh, that while Russia's invasion of Ukraine is absolutely appalling and must be condemned Ireland must protect its neutrality. There are lots of ways to help and Irish people are already donating money and essential supplies. The government is right not to be sending weapons. I think though at the same time Declan there are people who will question the fact uh, that uh, the government is uh, paying 9-10 million euro into this EU fund which will supply weapons and uh, whether you're <laughs> supporting a army by supplying uh, helmets uh, for the soldiers uh, I think uh, may be very questionable in terms of neutrality. Uh, Katrina from Drogheda is wondering where the war is going to end. She fears uh, that the longer it goes on, the more likely it is uh, that other EU countries will have to step in to protect the innocent people of Ukraine. And what will that lead to? She finds the whole thing heartbreaking. Little children are being killed and for what, she asks. Putin seems to be on a mission of destruction. Thank you, uh, Katrina, for your call to the programme as well. Thanks as well to Pat, who has been texting us. This is Pat and Balbriggan. He says, I, I know there's so much going on, but with the price of goods and fuel hitting everyone, especially people trying to heat their homes and run their cars, uh, as an example... Uh, look at uh, the tax that the government is uh, taking uh, off ordinary people. I got my heating tank filled yesterday. It took 880 litres. It cost 871 euro. Of that, 104 was VAT. No reason why in these hard times that could not be reduced. Thank you indeed, Pat, for that. Uh, I think uh, your home heating oil may go up in price. That's if you can get it, like a lot of other things. Uh, And on that note, let's go to the Irish Cattle and uh, Sheep Association, the ICSA, which is calling on uh, the Minister for Agriculture to issue farmers with vouchers to the value of €2,000 in order to help offset the increase in the cost of fertiliser. We're joined now by Tim Farrell, the Rural Development Chair of the ICSA. Good morning to you, Tim, and thanks for joining us. That sounds like a, a lot of money to a lot of us. Yeah, it, it probably does. But, I mean, um, the, one of the biggest problems we have is this the spiral costs and the huge increase that uh, farmers are incurring as a result of the, the, the spiral cost of fertiliser over the past number of months. Mm. And uh, somebody somebody somewhere along the way has to, um, you know, uh, either either 
issue aid to the farmers or otherwise it's going to have to be passed on to the consumer. Mm. And regrettably, uh, one of the things we have in, in the farming community, there seems to be very, very difficult for uh, you know production costs to filter back to the farmer. It's 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 lost somewhere in the, along the line. But um, mm. why, why is at, why, why is it so much more expensive? What what's caused this increase? Well, the the, the huge increase in fertilizer is linked to uh, the price of gas in the world market. And um, a lot of the fertilizers, the nitrogen fertilizers, are manufactured by a byproduct of the gas industry. And as a result, we all, we all know what has happened with the with the cost of um, gas mm. in the past number of months. Now, that's the beginning of the story. That's where we're at at the moment. And as yes. things stand, uh, you're looking at. Uh, it costing you two thousand euro more on average, I take it, than would have been otherwise the case. That's before the gas supply is interrupted, uh, coming from Russia as a, a result of sanctions. But there's also fertilizer. Uh, I think it's twenty percent of the fertilizer in this country comes from Russia. Does it? It does. Is right. Yeah. Yeah. Russia are one of the a major a major exporter of fertilizer products um, to the western to Western Europe and other parts of the world. Hmm. So you could be looking at another two thousand. I take it that's not inconceivable. Well, nobody knows after the events in Europe and as they're unfolding at the moment. Nobody knows the true impact of what's going to be ahead of us all. Mm. No matter what industry you're involved in, exactly. But it's going in the wrong direction, and it's not going to end any time soon. I mean, we're probably looking at years of this. Well, you know, hopefully not. Hopefully not. If, if, if the world could, and Europe could return to some degree of normality, there is a possibility that, that uh, things are settled down. But, you know, you'd have to be an optimist of great proportions to see anything good coming out of this for in the foreseeable future. Mm. Well, you're already pinned to the collar. Uh, what has uh, the minister said uh, in response to you? Well, as you'll appreciate, Michael, I mean, we've only, our communication has only been with the Minister and his officials yesterday, so uh, to my knowledge, nothing has come back yet, but, you know, in fairness, they have to be given sufficient time to give a due consideration. Mm. You know, I mean, I mean, it sounds 2,000 euros sounds a lot mm. for a farmer, but like, I mean, uh, any farmers who would avail of the scheme as we as we projected would have to be able to demonstrate that they had a requirement or use fertilizer last year. Yeah. But you know, and and I mean it's 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 only fifty percent. We're looking to a max of fifty percent of the usage last year and to a maximum of two thousand euro. Now I know to some of the tillage farmers in your part of the world, Michael, I mean that's small fry, but I mean you know, on a countrywide basis, and especially to the smaller rural uh, family farms, mm. this would be a huge um, asset or assistance. Yeah, well, it'd be a big problem if uh, it's not forthcoming, and I think anybody listening will recognise that, and it's one that's going to get worse. Uh, but the government is going to be hearing this from every corner of society. Uh, I mean, just like uh, Pat in Balbriggan texting us about trying to fill a tank of oil, uh, everything everywhere is going to get more expensive and there's going to be an awful lot of pressure uh, from 
uh, as I say, almost every sector for some sort of assistance from government as a result of what's going on in the world. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, we have to be realistic. Coming on foot of two years of a pandemic, I mean, it is... It is pretty pretty difficult for, for all our society, as I said earlier on. But, I mean, if we look at the past two years and what has been done, now, obviously, it's been done at a cost, and none of us know when or how some of this cost is going to be repaid. But all sectors, or a lot of sectors of society were and businesses were aided during the pandemic. So maybe maybe we're getting into something where different sectors and it's like your caller about the the oil. We mm. all know what oil is. The same same with farming. We all have we have huge costs with with spiral costs of oil, transport, uh, feed, fertilizer. I mean, this is this is this isn't just a single item on its own in relation to farming. Yeah, well, that's it. The farms have to fill up their oil as well as everything else. There's no doubt. All right. Uh, well, uh, I think it, it puts uh, some perspective uh, on uh, some of the pressure uh, that your members are, are facing. And uh, as you say, you've made the case to the minister. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning, Tim. That's uh, okay, t- thank you very thank much. Thank you indeed, Tim Farrell, Rural Development Chair of the ICSA. That's uh, the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association. Let me bring you uh, just some more of uh, the comments coming to us. Elizabeth Indrahada says she feels sorry for anyone who cannot afford private health insurance because you're left waiting for operations. I had two occasions in the past number of years where I had surgery using my private insurance and I know had I been on the public list I would have been waiting a very long time. I don't have a huge amount of money coming in now as my husband is deceased but I would be afraid to let my insurance go because of this even though it is very expensive. I make other sacrifices to pay for it, but that shouldn't be the case. Thanks, Elizabeth, for that. I guess it depends on the surgery, but I'm not sure that it's always the case that private health insurance will push you up the line in terms of when you will be operated on. Um, we'd Tom in touch with us. He says, are farmers really at the pin of their collar? I don't think so, he says. He says, I also know so. Thanks, uh, Tom, for taking the time to tell us. Tony in County Loud says, Michael, the key to success for Ukraine in this conflict resides with Russia and the effective informing and influencing of the Russian people to take action. There is no other solution militarily. I would urge the US and all those with technological capabilities of informing the Russian people and the military, some of which are already looking uncomfortable in Putin's briefings, what the true situation is. And indeed, Russian people living here and elsewhere who are getting uncensored information should play a large part in this. This would be the 21st century equivalent of leaflet drops, which used to take place during the Second World War, says Tony in County Loud. Yeah, well, there's certainly information that the Russians are hearing that we're not hearing, very different to the information that we're getting. Uh, And it's quite hard to believe some of the things that are being said by the Russian authorities. Uh, Maybe we'll get a a flavour of it from that emergency meeting of the UN Security Council yesterday now. I shall now make a statement in my capacity as a representative of the Russian Federation. All right, and this 
is the Russian ambassador to the UN Security Council, Vasily Nebenzia. The situation in Ukraine is, of course, uh, the kind of situation that uh, gives rise to most serious concern amongst all of us. We can see that the ordinary people are suffering. The people who basically um, ended up being hostages by, uh, held by the Ukrainian radicals and nationalists who are clinging to power at any price. Now, why am I saying this? Because in those uh, territories which came under the Russian armed forces control, the people are not encountering acute humanitarian issues. The local authorities after the radicals have left are working normally in providing all the necessary services to the people. The um, life-providing services to the people are functioning. Life-providing services. Uh, the ambassador is speaking through a uh, translator. Russia's claim that it's acting to protect Ukraine and its people might seem fairly uh, amazing, but the ambassador was earnest about the role of Russia on the ground. The acute uh, issues are only uh, remain in those towns uh, where the Ukrainian authorities issued a criminal and responsible order to distribute arms to anyone who wants it, including criminals, the criminals who was who were let out of, of prisons for that specific purpose. And this resulted in mass instances of robberies and, and uh, killings and looting. There's plenty of information about that in social networks. The social networks also have appeals from a number of heads of administrations calling on the Ukrainian authorities to stop this madness. Mm. Russia isn't just claiming that Ukraine is acting madly. It's also claiming somehow that Russia is being blamed for this Ukrainian madness. We also note that there is many instances where later on the victims of the looters and gangsters are shamelessly presented as having perished at the hands of the so-called Russian infiltrators. We address the people in Kiev held by the radicals in the city as a human shield. The Russian Ministry of Defense confirms that all those peaceful citizens of Kiev can leave the capital of Ukraine without hindrance via the road Kiev-Vasilkov. This road is open and safe. So Russia claiming it's trying to help people in Ukraine and help people escape from the Ukrainian regime. Listening to the Russian ambassador, you'd be forgiven for thinking Russia is not raging war in Ukraine. Let me repeat it once again that the special military operation conducted by the Russian armed forces does not have the goal of occupying Ukraine or harming the local population. Demilitarizing the country which is crammed with NATO weaponry is aimed at protecting the long-suffering people in Donbass and Ukraine. The special operation conducted by Russia does not impact critical civilian infrastructure. Over the five days of the operation, there hasn't been a single documented case of targeted destruction or no evidence of the death of civilians caused by the Russian military. And we're constantly being told the opposite, referring to some kind of credible reports. Despite the fact that currently in the information area, there is a huge number of fakes, the kinds of fakes that people are trying to place on us, the blame for what is being done by Ukraine itself. And this tide of dirty lies replicated in Western mass media, unfortunately, very unfortunately, have become a dangerous mark of our times. Today, at this meeting of Security Council, once again, we heard about the bombings of residential areas, hospitals, schools and kindergartens. It is 
reliably know that the Ukrainian radicals are placing their attack weaponry in residential areas, which is a direct violation of international humanitarian law. Mm. And thanks again to Tony for the text this morning. And given what we've just heard there, you might be right. This could be an information war. And if we're to win uh, the hearts of uh, the Russian people and if the Russian people can impact on uh, the direction of uh, the regime's uh, attack on Ukraine and God knows what after that, uh, maybe that is the way to approach it because that's the type of information, no doubt, that uh, the people in Russia are getting uh, and that was the Russian ambassador to the United Nations Security Council. He was speaking at that emergency meeting of uh, the council, yes, and uh, I think there was a lot of interest in what Fasili Nebensia had to say yesterday for that matter. Michael Reed on LMFM. I've seen many scientific reports in my time, but nothing like this. Today's IPCC report is an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. With fact upon fact, this report reveals how people on the planet are getting clobbered by climate change. Nearly half of humanity is living in the danger zone now. Many ecosystems are at the point of no return now. Unchecked carbon pollution is forcing the world's most vulnerable on a frog march to destruction now. The facts are undeniable. This abdication of leadership is criminal. The world's biggest polluters are guilty of arson on our only home. It is essentially to meet the goal of limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. And science tells us that will require the world to cut emissions by 45% by 2030 and achieve net zero emissions of greenhouse gases by 2050. But according to current commitments, global emissions are set to increase almost 14% over the current decade. That spells catastrophe. It will destroy any chance of keeping 1.5 alive. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, speaking about uh, the report published yesterday from uh, the IPCC and uh, the warning that uh, time is running out if we want uh, to save uh, the planet. Let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on climate change, Darren O'Rourke, who's a TD for Mead East and on the line. And good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. A, a pretty dramatic statement there from the Secretary General, an abdication of leadership with which will have catastrophic consequences. It is, Michael, and um, it's the it's the second in a, a number of reports, um, uh, and, and this one dealt with the impacts, the adaptation, and, and vulnerabilities of of climate change. And they're very substantial. I think it's a, a global effort to put these reports together. Um, they run to over 3,600 pages of, you know, uh, uh, research mm. and information. So the, the the case is increasingly compelling and the evidence that's collated um, is, uh, is very, very significant. And, um, you know, I'm reluctant to say that it's a, it's a wake-up call because uh, we, we've had these wake-up calls for, for very well, many it's years. It's too late in many uh, circumstances, isn't it? Uh, and if uh, we don't act dramatically now, we're looking at global warming of uh, about uh, 3% rather than the one5 
yeah that that's what they're saying so so i think we're on a we're on the wrong trajectory i think we have have a huge evidence base there now that um that shows us the physical science and also uh, the the impacts you know and, and the impacts are as you say you know they're they're extreme weather events heat waves and droughts and floods and they have a direct impact on on uh, human life and also on on animal and and uh our whole ecology uh, in terms of food shortages in terms of of mass extinctions mm. they they predict and project out the you know the the the, the risks that are there at 1.5 degrees we're, we're we're on a trajectory to go beyond that but at 1.5 degrees up to 14 percent of of species are at are, are at risk of of extinction and, and that has a you know a very very uh, the potential for to have a very very profound effect on okay, but our the, whole ecosystem the, the window is closing or the time is now uh, or it's past time in some senses so what do we do now yeah i think i, I think what I see from it, and uh, that one of the main messages I've read, and I haven't gone through the whole documentation, but there are some, you know, some reason for for policymakers is that it's about political will, and uh, we know what we need to do in in very many respects. You know, it is to wean ourselves off uh, fossil fuels, and you know, there's some implications there in terms of the. The, the the war in Ukraine. We need to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. We need to move to active and public transport we, and electric vehicles. And um, we need to retrofit our homes. We need to be less carbon intensive in everything we do. The challenge is is achieving that, Michael. And we've we've you know th- there have been there has been significant progress. In fairness, at a at a policy level mm. in, in Ireland, for example, but what we keep hearing time and again, uh, including in this most uh, recent IPCC report, but also from the Irish Climate Change Advisory Council and in the last couple of weeks from the head of the EPA, that we're we're missing our own targets and we're continuing to miss our own targets because this because the window is closing, time is of the essence and the scale of uh, action isn't uh, sufficiently um, a- aggressive, so so we're in real risk of of uh, you know, and, and I think it is important for people because it, in many respects, it feels like this isn't real and isn't happening in the immediacy. Um, but the decisions we make today. The actions we don't take today will have real consequences in the years ahead, and and that you know it mightn't be that many years in the future when when the real implications are are starting to be felt in this part of the world. They're already being felt in other parts of the world. Okay, so when should we act, or what should we be doing now? Uh, give us some specifics, if you would. Well, so for example, in Ireland, the, the the big opportunity, the big thing we need to do is to harness the opportunity of renewable energy. So onshore and offshore wind, uh, solar, uh, PV, um, any uh, technology that comes after that. We, you know, we're really behind the curve in relation to it. Like so many things, you know, there's a estate architecture that has to get up up and running in the departments and in the bureaucracy, and that can take uh, age, literally ages. Um, so we're behind the curve in relation to that. We need to expedite that. We need to, uh, you know, significantly increase our investment in public transport, for example, to ensure that mm. people have a real option there that works for them on a on a daily basis. You know, to to opt out of owning owning a car or to use their their car less. 
we need on an individual basis to to make conscious decisions in terms of our consumption um if you know as as best we can you know uh, buy local produce and uh, uh, and you know reduce reuse and, and recycle that that mantra uh, but how, we need how soon can we do those things for example yeah it, it, those you know at, at an individual level there are actions that we can take that can make a difference. Uh, and, you know, there, there is a, a suite of options, and I think people are familiar okay, with them. OK, but uh, I think the IPCC is looking to governments to act uh, and uh, to bring the population with them. So, uh, politically, what should we be doing? What, what should we be doing uh, to get people out of their cars? When or how quickly can we provide public transport? Yeah, I, I think, Michael, and I'll go back to this point, and I don't want to be um, too negative in relation to it, we have an argument, you know, between Sinn Féin and other parties in relation to carbon tax, in relation to... Uh, but, but I actually think that's an argument that's dealing with a tiny piece of, of this issue. I think we need to rewrite the, the fiscal rules of the European Union. Um, I think we need to front-load investment at this point in time to show people that the states are taking this serious. I think we need to to tackle the the, the major um, polluters at, at an industrial level. And you know, mm. okay, just bear with me for a minute, if you would, Darren O'Rourke. We'll hear a little bit more from uh, the UN Secretary General at the launch of the IPCC report yesterday. Today's report underscores two core truths. First. Coal and other fossil fuels are choking humanity. All G20 governments have agreed to stop funding coal abroad. They must now urgently do the same at home and dismantle their coal fleets. Those in the private sector still financing coal must be held to account. Oil and gas giants and their underwriters are also on notice. You cannot claim to be green while your plans and projects undermine the 2050 net zero target and ignore the major emission cuts that must occur this decade. People see through the smokescreen. OECD countries must phase out coal by 2030 and all others by 2040. The present global energy mix is broken. As current events make all too clear, our continued reliance on fossil fuels makes the global economy and energy security vulnerable to geopolitical shocks and crises. Coal, he says, to be phased out by 2030. All other fuels, uh, fossil fuels, that is, by 2040 in the UK. They're talking about phasing out coal by 2024. Can we do that here? The answer to all of those is as quickly as humanly possible. And the the way we do that is, is massive investment by the state in offshore wind. Because, for example, example, what we're doing at the minute is we're trying to design a market that is attractive to the private sector um, to, to tap into. And, you know, they will, and it's, it's their entitlement. But we can't do it by 2024, can we? Can we phase out all fossil fuels by uh, 2023? No, no, we, we we probably can't, Michael. But what we can do, for example, is we can transition to um, less less harmful um, and, and less polluting fossil fuels. But is know, that not that, the abdication of leadership uh, that's going to lead to catastrophic consequences uh, that we've been hearing about? N- no, it isn't. I think I think in fairness, Michael, what I'm talking about is that the practical realities of doing it. So, for example, you know, if we dropped everything and put all of the state's resources into delivering onshore wind and uh, offshore wind and renewable technologies, which would make a transformational mm. change. Would, would elect, you know, be able well, you to wouldn't elect, need coal then. If you did that successfully, you, you wouldn't need you, coal. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't need you, gas. You, 
you wouldn't but it, it would take time to do it mm. you know it, it, it you, you you know it would take a, a number of years but but the, uh, i think the thing that's missing michael and it's not just me that's saying it i think the ipc says the cc the the climate change group have said it, said it here um, it's the the type of focus and energy you know the departments will talk about we don't have the bandwidth to do to do all the, the the scale of changes that are that are proposed and that's a, a problem um and that's you know for me it's 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 what's needed in relation to this that the, the issue we have is that you know it's governments are trying to design markets that leave it attractive for private companies to go in and make a profit in in these areas so the sell off state assets the the sell off uh, our natural resources and state resources whereas i think you know at a european level there needs to be a rewriting of the fiscal rules for example, to prioritise the massive investment in renewable energy, uh, uh, and, and everything flows from that massive investment in renewable energy. That you know okay. brings so, so the target dates, for example, at the minute, Michael, are 2027, 8, 9, and 2030. We we need to bring that back to 2024, 25 and 26. That's the, I think, a reasonable well, time frame. We need to do something very quickly. It's clear the red flag has been raised and uh, the planet is at risk, if ever it was. Uh, and uh, it's uh, spelt out uh, in very stark terms in that report. Thank you indeed, though, for talking to us uh, this morning, Darren. Thanks for that, Michael. Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on climate change. Michael Reed on LMFM. Eating Disorders Awareness Week 2022 got underway yesterday and runs up to the 6th of March. Bodywise, that's W-H-Y-S, Bodywise is the national voluntary organisation supporting people affected by eating disorders. And according to official figures, that's about 188,000 people in this country who are affected by an eating disorder. Let's speak to Barry Murphy, who's a research and policy officer with Bodywise. Good morning, Barry, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, can you begin by telling us what a, an eating disorder is? I suppose we're uh, aware of anorexia or bulimia or uh, what other disorders there are, but, but what's going on in a person that has an eating disorder? Yeah, so eating disorders are, are serious and, and complex mental illnesses and they've been around for quite a long time and the the main kind of focus in terms of what's happening for the person is that there are kind of patterns of behaviour around say restricting food intake, kind of binge eating or overeating or kind of over exercising, purging, excuse me, or the use of laxatives. So in a sense that's what a person is, is trying to do to control as a, as a form of coping mechanism but we know there's, uh, there's generally a biological basis for it as well and it, it occurs what we would tend to see when a person is really kind of in a very stressed situation it can be kind of a, a coping response in, in that regard as you said there's more to it than anorexia there's, so there's bulimia nervosa mm-hmm. there's also binge eating disorder there's avoidant restrictive food intake disorder and then there's finally OSFED, which is otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder. And mm. But is, is there a, a common psychological factor in all of the eating disorders, I suppose, is what I'm wondering? Yeah, it's going to, it's it's very variable. You know, you would see a lot, we tend to see a lot of people maybe have, be quite perfectionistic, quite anxious as people, people experiencing a lot of, 
social difficulties both prior to and as a consequence of the illness, so feeling different from others, things like bullying, weight-based teasing, those can have an impact in kind of kind of starting the kindling, if you like, that, that lights the spark of an eating disorder, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, and the theme of the Awareness Week is hidden challenges. Maybe you'd talk us through some of those challenges. Yeah, so I think for people who don't have any connection with an eating disorder, be a sense that it's all just about the kind of more visible side of it when you know there's obviously obviously enough more going on underneath for the person so certainly one of the difficulties people have is, is communicating say with family or friends and kind of going through recovery and, and treatment and, and stigma and there can be a sense that if a person's physical health improves their that everything else is okay and that's that's often not the case and you know there can be difficulties kind of around relapse and, and recovery okay uh, and uh, is there a percentage of people uh, who have a, an eating disorder that are, are men because this isn't exclusive uh, to women or girls is it absolutely yeah and we have a, a webinar now coming up on, on Thursday evening that's all based on, on men and on both speakers from a professional kind of clinical perspective and then also two men, Carl McRyan and Keith Russell who are, who are going to discuss their own experiences too. Historically, the old figure for men would have been kind of one in ten cases of an eating disorder, but we know that's that's really quite inaccurate and I think what's, what's going on for men, part mm-hmm. of it is we're just is that they are no less exposed to kind of the risk factors for eating disorders. So when I first started working in this area, there wasn't much of a conversation around men and eating disorders. Now that has really definitely changed in the last couple of years, thanks to to more men coming forward. But there are still men, I think, both kind of living in the shadows, so to speak, or, or slowly just trying to emerge from it. Okay, there's no real logic to an eating disorder, or is there? Uh, it's compulsive behaviour, isn't it? Yeah, there's a there's a strong connection there with kind of obsessive compulsive disorder, and I suppose what we tend to hear is that people feel caught. So there's there's something within an eating disorder called the eating disorder voice, and it's not a hallucination type voice or anything like that, but it's where there's kind of the eating disorder side of their head versus the the rational side of their head, for example. And it's that kind of internal battle and conflict that a person is, is living with. And um, that kind of sets forward all the rules around food and weight and often as well misinterprets the person. So it's, it's a real challenge to live with kind of that extra voice in your head that is kind of hypercritical. Mm. Uh, is this an addiction or is it like an addiction? Yeah, I mean, it's probably one of those debates that mm. might run and run. So I suppose, again, coming back to the kind of the obsessive compulsive piece where we would see you know, people sometimes ask, where does the where does it cross over from disorders into an eating disorder? It's, it's really where the compulsion piece comes in and the person feels that they have to do it in order to feel OK and to feel mm. safe. Mm. Uh, and is there that... Uh thing that you find with most addictions where people are covering it up or lying about their behaviour or trying uh, to make sure that people don't find out uh, about how they're behaving and try to do it privately? 
certainly there's a lot of uh, secretive kind of hidden behaviours around it and people I think want to be quite stealthy and maybe cover themselves up physically in that and there's another dimension as well that people have to manage kind of touched on what I touched on earlier just people are constantly aware of other people's perception around the illness and that that's a challenge and it's quite unfair to have to live with that as well because you know, it just adds to the kind of distress of having an illness if you're, if you're kind of constantly managing your own kind of internal mm. situation and trying to tune in to what other people may be saying against you, which might not be helpful. Mm. And I suppose if it is different from an addiction, uh, the difference is that... Um, uh, you, you know, you're not doing something or there's nothing else involved. It's you and how most people live ordinarily with food and you're not living ordinarily with food. So does that mean that it's an illness that's in you that you cannot overcome? So it's, it's, it is possible to fully recover from an eating disorder. At the same time, recovery is, is hugely subjective to the person, even by by language. You know, people would say they're in recovery, they're recovered, or they're recovering. And certainly we know one of the key components to recovery is, you know, a person really has to have a voice in it. You, you can't put a gun to a person's head and, and make them recover. You can't voice the recovery on, on someone. So there are some people who would have it for quite a long period of time who would be more in kind of the, the severe and enduring category of an eating disorder and kind of would have, say, repeat hospitalizations and maybe lose their job and all of that kind of thing. So that can be very hard to live with in terms of also the, the medical consequences, I suppose. Mm. You know, recovery is not just physical but it's emotional and we're also seeing there's a, there's a real social dimension to it as well because people need a lot of support not necessarily just from the medical system but within their own kind of community or family situation and they people don't really get fully well in in hospital it's more so afterwards so the hospital piece might be about medical st- stabilization whereas recovery could be more say outpatient and then friends and family support mm. as well well, of course, yeah, it must be a, a terrible worry for families when somebody has a, an eating disorder uh, and you provide support to families as well, of course, in body wise. Yes, so just there in February, we wrapped up our family programme, which is is online, obviously, at the moment, with just par- parents from across 22 counties and then we have another instalment of that coming up on the 24th of March and in 2021 that programme, the Pillar programme reached over 1,500 families which was a 125 increase on an already busy 2020. Okay. Well, there's help uh, available through bodywise.ie and you have a helpline number as well. It's a a Dublin number 2107906. That's 2107906 and it's uh, available to people from the radio station if uh, they didn't get to jot it down. But bodywise.ie otherwise. Uh, And uh, obviously it's appeal to people whether they have uh, an eating disorder uh, themselves or if they have a family member that they're worried about to reach out to you, particularly this week, uh, Eating Disorders Awareness Week. Thank you, Michael. Thank you indeed. Barry Murphy, Research and Policy Officer with BodyWise. 
Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as, as usual, around this time uh, for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents. Garda, you're investigating, and perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. Garda Kate Patterson of Dundalk Station joins us uh, for the report this week, and we're going to begin in Navan. A week ago today, last Tuesday evening, around half eight in the evening, a large group of young people gathered in the town, and uh, the results were a number of Gardaí were injured and you're appealing to the public for any assistance in identifying the people who were involved. That's right, Michael. Um, as you mentioned, at around half eight last Tuesday night, um, a number of juveniles were involved in an incident in Market Square in Navan. Three Gardaí were injured. Um, now, we are following a definite line of inquiry. However, a lot of young people were involved both in the incident and on the periphery. We're currently in the process of trying to identify everybody who was part of this group. So we're appealing to any witnesses, um, anybody who may have dash cam footage or mobile phone footage, and we're asking them to contact the incident room at Navangarda Station on 46 907-9930 or alternatively on the Garda Confidential Line. That's 1800-666-111. We have a, a burglary in Kells to report on next. We do, Michael. So this occurred in um, on the 25th of February, um, Friday there, in the early hours of Friday morning at 3.30. And it was in a petrol station in the Stahlmog area. Um, again, we're appealing for anybody that may have been in the area at the time, anybody who noticed any suspicious vehicles or per- people, um, anything that appeared out of the ordinary, we're asking you please to get in contact with Kale's Garda Station um, and they can be reached on 046 Okay, as we've been hearing, uh, you're appealing for information on a, a road uh, traffic incident which occurred yesterday as well. Yeah, so quite a serious road traffic collision which occurred in the early hours of yesterday morning. So that was February the 28th at around 1.20. And this collision took place on the R162 in Nobber. And it was a single vehicle collision. And three people that were in the vehicle um, were injured and they were taken to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. So again, we would like to speak to anybody who was travelling in the area at the time and who may have dash cam footage. Um, anybody with any information or with any dash cam footage is asked to contact Navangarda Station. Okay, another attack on sheep to report on and it is another attack on sheep that occurred in the coolies. That's right, Michael. So this happened last Tuesday in the Ballyunan area of Omeast. Um So a number of sheep were injured overnight by a dog that had been left unsecured. Two of the sheep, unfortunately, were very badly injured um, with the lambing season upon us. The farmers in the area are understandably very, very worried. And we would like to take this opportunity to remind dog owners of the harm that their pets can cause if they're allowed to roam free or unsecured and aren't kept under control. We would say to all dog owners that, you know, with dog ownership comes responsibility and you need to secure your dog. At this time of year especially, we see many issues with sheep kills um, when dogs attack livestock. Your dog shouldn't be allowed to roam. If your dog attacks an animal on someone else's land, you know, you could be held liable for the damages and you couldn't aid face prosecution. A lot of people mightn't realise, but a farmer is also within their right to shoot any animal that's worrying their livestock. So please keep your fa- family pet under effective control. To Dundalk and uh, a couple of uh, burglaries uh, that occurred in uh, the town Friday night going into Saturday morning. 
That's right. So in the very early hours of um, Saturday morning, at around 5am, um, and there were both quite similar burglaries in that they took place in local eateries in the Clambrassel Street area. Um, so during these burglaries, the suspect managed to make their way behind the counter and take cash from the premises. So we're asking, because of the early hours of the incident, was anybody in Dundalk at 5am on Saturday morning? Did you notice anything strange? Did you see anybody that looked suspicious? Or did your car, did the dash cam indeed perhaps pick up something that you think might have caused any suspicion? If you can help us in any way, then please contact Dundalk Garda Station. Uh, the number in Dundalk is 042 938 8400. All right, uh, to Chairman Fecken and uh, a burglary, which you're hoping to get information on, but also one uh, that might come as a word of warning to some of our listeners. Absolutely, Michael. Now, this burglary took, took place last week on the 21st of February. Now, there's quite a distinctive motive was used in it. So we're really appealing to elderly people and people on their own to be especially alert. This is what we call a distraction burglary. So what happened was um, a female called to a home in this location. This female knocked on the door. The homeowner came out and the female asked the homeowner owner for assistance in looking for a cat. Um, the homeowner obliged and while she did, a male made his way into the house and burgled it. So a distraction burglary. Um, a similar, a very, very similar attempt was made in Drogheda about an hour earlier. Um, and we have seen that in the south of the country, this type of distraction modus operandi has been previously used um, quite a lot by interregional uh, criminals. Um, so we would like, like to ask people to keep an eye out for a wine-coloured Mercedes. It's a B-series Mercedes and the registration, partial registration, 05D. Now, this has been linked to similar incidents in the south of the country. But given the incident in Termonfecken last week, we, you know, we would like to people's awareness to sort of be heightened given that it seems to be making its way up this sort of end of the country. All right. Be warned and be careful. Uh, you... I want to talk a, a little bit about the history of uh, the force and, and indeed going forward in new uniforms. Yeah, so I'm sure a lot of your listeners know um, that Arngadar Shakana are celebrating our centenary this year. So we were founded 100 years ago back in 1922 in Dublin. And over the next couple of weeks, I suppose, there will be a number of events to mark the centenary. And one event that sort of might be um, more visible to the public is the introduction of our new Garda uniform. So we don't have a definite date yet for the official launch. Um, but at the minute, all your local guards are being issued with their new uniform. Um, we're all delighted with it. It's the first time in a 100 years that our frontline officers won't have to don a shirt and a tie. Our new uniform is um, its much more lightweight. It's better equipped to deal with the needs of modern policing. Um, we'll be wearing a lightweight blue polo shirt, a soft shell jacket and a sort of combat style trousers. Now, our hat will still remain in place, so I suppose that provides a nice nod back to our more traditional attire and uniform. OK, very good. Uh, and just uh, very briefly, uh, you want to mention hotline.ie, which is a very important uh, service, uh, I think, for all of us. It is, Michael. Now, Angarda Shikana and Hotline have created an online reporting facility, and this is specifically aimed at people who are victims of intimate image abuse. So complaints can be made on the website, which is hotline.ie. Any complaint that is made on that website will be passed on to ourselves in Angarda Shikana and will be fully investigated. Um, so if you 
believe you have been in any way the victim of somebody sharing an, an intimate abuse online, then please use the hotline facility to report it. Garda Kate Patterson of Dundalk Garda Station. Thank you. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.